Now, we've been singing a lot of songs this morning about love. And when I think about songs about love, I, I, because my children are young, I think about the Barney song. You know, I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. Uh, but there's another song that I think about a lot. And even though it came out in 1965, I'm pretty sure that everybody of my generation knows it. Maybe you, you knew it. Maybe it was on the radio when you were a kid and, and you grew up with it. But uh, it's a song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. So I was thinking about that song this week and did some research on the background. It was written in 1965 and released that spring, written by a guy named Hal David, who uh, is apparently in the Songwriters Hall of Fame and has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and uh, a big deal. And Burt Bacharach provided the musical track for it. Uh, and it's been recorded by everybody. I mean, you, you go on iTunes or Spotify and type it in, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. You'll find it all. You like the smooth jazz stylings of Burt Bacharach. You, you got it. You're into funk. It's there. Um, so just go this afternoon and find a piece that fits your cup of tea and listen to it. You know, you, you think about that song and the impact it's made on pop culture, and you start to look at the context from which it came. And 1965 was not an easy year for our nation, right? In March of that year, the civil rights marchers had uh, been stopped at the Selma Bridge and had clashed with the Alabama state troopers. Uh, President Johnson sent the first 3,500 Marines into Vietnam in March. Um, by the summer, when this song was climbing the charts, and it eventually hit number seven on the Billboard charts in America and number one in Canada, um, I mean, the, that full anti-war movement had taken root, and they were burning draft cards on the streets. Not in Muskogee, but somewhere and pretty much everywhere, they were burning their draft cards down on Main Street, and they were marching on Washington. And man, you looked around, the country was polarized by all sorts of issues and divided and it was loveless. And you understand why those lyrics rang so true. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And in the 60 years since that song was released, not a lot's changed, has it? I mean, take an honest look at our world and you see a lot of the same things. I mean, praise God there's been progress on so many fronts. But man, we're still divided over similar racial lines that we were 60 years ago. Still divided over political issues. There's violent crime waves on the rise. Then you add to that what you and I experience as just individual men and women. I mean, we are so isolated from each other. We don't have deep safety nets of family structures. Um, we sit in our homes, and we watch our TVs, and we get on Facebook, and we interact. But for the most part, we're just kind of apathetic. We're disconnected. We're loveless. And so you ask yourself the question, where do you find the kind of love they're talking about? I mean, we all agree we need it. There's not enough love in the world to go around. We need some more love. Where do you find it? Now, I'm convinced what the world needs now is love. What Luling needs now is love. And I bet... Even some of you are here today, and what you need now is love. And if that's the case, I want to just tell you that you're in the right place. Because the Bible tells us that though our world is in incredibly broken and messed up, we're divided, we're apathetic, and all the rest, 
God has maintained one attitude towards mankind. He loves us. He loves us so much that he actually gave his son so that we could experience the transforming love that the song reaches out for and that your own heart begs for. So this morning, as we walk through the passage Raymond just read for us, I want to encourage you that even now in the midst of a broken and divided, loveless world, God is at work creating a community of people who are transformed by his love so that you and I can bank our lives on the promise that when we experience Jesus' love, we'll be transformed to love others. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, what it means to experience the love of Jesus and to be transformed to love the people around you. If you've been here the past couple of weeks, you know we've been working our way through John chapter 15. Past couple Sundays, we've really dug into Jesus' picture about the vine and the branch. He says, I'm the true vine, you are the branches, my father is the vine dresser. And his goal with his disciples in this critical moment of his life was to try to explain to them how they were going to cope with the next phase of their relationship with him. Jesus had spent three and a half years walking around with them and teaching them, letting them get a firsthand view of who Jesus really was. And here on the night that one of his best friends would betray him and he would be handed over to the religious leaders to be crucified, he wanted to make sure his disciples had their final lessons. And so he told them about the vine and the branches, that if they wanted to continue in the world bearing fruit, doing things to the glory of God, then they were going to have to remain connected to him in the same way a vine is connected to its branches. They were going to have to abide in him. He says, abide in me and and I and you, and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we've talked about what that really means. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Do you feel like you have a good grasp of that? Have you been abiding in Jesus? I hope so. I hope you've been cultivating an attitude of dependency. Where you're saying that if, if you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. Unless you're rooting your life in his words, allowing them to be the filter through which you see your world, allowing them to determine the actions and in interactions you have with people around you, then you're sunk. And I hope you've been lifting up your needs to him in prayer. That's what we've seen the past couple of weeks. But here in verse 12, where Raymond started reading for us, Jesus sort of shifts his attention away from the completely vertical relationship of the disciples with the master and to the relationships on the horizontal plane, the relationships they're going to have between one another. So things were about to change. And Jesus wanted to make sure they knew how they were going to live as his people. And so he tells them, this is my commandment, that you love one another. You see that in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Now I know it's familiar, we've already been singing it, it's in your mind, if you've been around the church a long time, you know it, but I want you to think about how startling it is that when Jesus boils down all of his teaching, Everything that he could have said to one commandment, it's like the fine point on the tip of a pencil. This is my commandment. He says that they should love one another. Jesus knew in that moment everything they were going to face together as those 11 disciples. They knew what the next 60, he knew what the next 60 years of their lives looked like. He, He knew everything they were going to face. And he could have said a lot of stuff. I mean, it's conceivable that he could have said, hey, this is my commandment that you look out for each other, that you protect each other, 
that you defend each other, that you provide for each other, that you respect each other, that you teach each other, that you equip each other. But instead, Jesus says, love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Now, love is this amorphous term. What exactly does he mean by love? Does he mean love one another like, I love pizza and fried chicken? I love that stuff. I would eat it the rest of my life. But is that the love I'm supposed to have for you? Or is there something else? Now, scholars tell us this Greek word that we translate love in this passage is the Greek word agape. And the dictionary definition is simply this. It means to have warm regard for and interest in another. So I'm supposed to have warm regard for you, and you're supposed to have warm regard for me. Well, when I think about you, my heart swells up with love. I, I, I will never be able to tell the story of my life without y'all. I love you. Throughout the New Testament, this word love is used to describe relationships like that. It's used to describe the relationship between husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And in each case, the love he's talking about goes beyond mere affection or even infatuation and gets down to something deeper. The love Jesus is talking about is selfless and sacrificial. I like the way C.S. Lewis talks about it in his classic book, The Four Loves. He says, agape is all giving and no getting. It's completely focused on the good of the person you love. And so if you know anything about Jesus' life, it's unsurprising that when he boils down everything he's taught, when he sums up all of his life, he says, love one another. Of course, Jesus was firmly committed to the scriptures and commandments. So in just a merely historical, religious perspective, it's not surprising that this would be the command he gives. I mean, love is actually an Old Testament command. Leviticus 19, 18 says this. Do not take revenge or harbor a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus takes this commandment and reiterates it to his disciples, love one another. Moses told Israel on the plains of Moab as they were waiting to go into the promised land, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I mean, love is an important part of every follower of Jesus because it's the thing we owe to God and to others. That's why when the scribe, the scholar of the law, comes to Jesus and tries to trap him in Mark chapter 12, he says, Teacher, tell us which is the most important commandment in all the law. And Jesus says, Well, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it that you love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments fulfill the whole law. And so again, it's unsurprising that Jesus committed to the scriptures who says, don't think that I came to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. The one who lived his life in perfect obedience to the Father. It's unsurprising that in the last moments of his time with his disciples, he would tell them to love. Love one another. I mean, he frequently repeated it and emphasized it. I mean, his whole life is an example of love. But there's something different about this command. 
It's not simply love. It's not love God. It's not love neighbor. It's not even love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, like he says in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. It's love one another. And he talks about this. You may want to turn the page over with me back to John chapter 13 and look with me at verse 34. Because I want you to see that when Jesus tells his disciples to love one another, he is doing something that's got deep roots in the Old Testament and in the people of Israel's relationship with God, but it's also something unique. He says in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. So I think this is just amazing. I know it's familiar to you. You grew up here and love one another, love one another, love one another. This was something that was brand new for his disciples. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. I mean, of course, he wants us to love God. And he wants us to love our neighbors. And he recovers the heartbeat of God when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But here he's talking about something new, a unique reciprocal relationship that's going to exist among followers of Jesus. So they're going to love one another. Love one another. You read the Bible and you get past the resurrection and you see these 11 disciples gathered with their friends in this place they called the upper room in Jerusalem. And because they loved each other, they were praying together, huddled up in this room, asking God to send his blessing. And when he does give them the Holy Spirit and they start preaching, thousands of people are saved. They're brought to Christ and they join the church. And what happens? But they love each other. And they start selling all their possessions so that the impoverished members of their community would have enough to eat or would have a place to stay. They showed their love in concrete acts of sacrifice and service. And the whole world knew it. The whole world recognized it. There was something different about these people, these so-called Christians. By the second century, the Roman emperor Hadrian, who has a famous wall in England that separated the Roman Empire from the Scots, the wild people in the north, he sent a philosopher named Aristides to try to decipher what this Christian movement was all about. And so he kind of went in covertly, undercover a little bit, wanted to spy on the Christians to see what they did. And he wrote a letter back to Hadrian that you can Google today and read all about. And he outlined the basic beliefs about Jesus that the Christians held, that he's God, but he was crucified and resurrected, that they get together and call each other brothers and sisters. And he ends with the most glorious statement anyone could ever make about any church. Behold how they love one another. I mean, the church then was a mixed bag of practices, just like ours today, but they loved one another. And that was the thing that stood out. That was the thing they became known for. And so what are followers of Jesus called to do? What must we do? We must love one another. That's how people will know that we're Jesus' followers. There's also something else we need to see, not just what we do, but how we do it. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. So you ask yourself, well, how has Jesus loved us? 
You don't have to search too far. You go to verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, if you do what I command. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave doesn't know what his master's doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So we're to love one another in a very specific way, as Jesus has loved us. Now, I want to just say this up front, and I want to make sure everybody hears me. I believe God loves the world, the whole world. I believe every man, woman, and child that has ever been born is specially loved by God. Each one of them is created by Him with a purpose and a plan in mind, that He knows exactly how each of us fit into the whole scope of human history. And everything He does in our life is an an aspect, an overflow of the love he has for us. That's not always easy to understand or wrap our minds around how tragedies could happen and, and still be part of a good God's plan for my life. But it is the case, the Bible says, that all things work together for good. So somehow in the wisdom of God, even bad things are an aspect of the love he has for the world. And I believe that, that God loves the world. But I think the love Jesus is talking about here is a little more narrow in scope than that general love that God has for mankind. I think he's thinking about particular people. He says, as I have loved you. And I like to think that as he's there with his disciples, he met eyes with each of them. As I've loved you. As I've loved you. And in that moment, three and a half years of experiences flood back to their minds. I mean, they think of everything Jesus has done that they recognized in the moment was an expression of his love for them. He never acted towards them out of obligation. You know, we, we do that sometimes. We say things like, I may not like you, but I love you. And so we just sort of chalk it up to, hey, I've got to do this, but it's not something we really enjoy doing. Jesus interacted with those disciples, and everything he did, they could tell, came from a place of love. Even when he corrected them and said, hey, you guys are, are, you guys are crazy? You haven't figured it out yet? Even when he chastised them, even when he corrected them, he did it, and they recognized them doing it as love. So he's got a very narrow scope of love in mind. As I have loved you. But I think he's also projecting forward because verse 13 tells us that for Jesus, the greatest love that anybody can conceive is that he would willingly give his own life for his friends. And that's the very thing he was about to do. I mean, he was hours away from being beaten and crucified. And he knew it, and he wanted them to know it, that it was all because he loved them. In fact, if you search the Bible, you see that everything about Jesus' life his death, his resurrection, all came from a place of love. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. The, the theological background to that verse is that God, who has existed from all eternity as one being in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, so loved the world that the Father would willingly send his son to suffer and die for his people. That, that God in himself would send himself. So that you could say this, that 
Because God loved, the Son left His place in glory in heaven and took on human flesh to get hot when the AC went out. To get tired after walking all day. And to get hungry. That the God who always had everything He needed would willingly take on weakness to know grief, to know pain, because He loved. You can say that because God loved, the Son left the Father and obeyed Him completely. He said that last week. If you keep my commands, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and abide in His love. The obedience of Jesus' life when I say He was perfect and kept God's law to a T, that wasn't because He had to. It's because He loved God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved, and so He lived an obedient life. You could say that because God loved, He willingly went to the cross as a substitute for sinners. That He became of propitiation, that he was the atoning sacrifice that provided redemption from our sins. You could say that it was because of love that even when we were helpless, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. I mean, everything about Jesus' life was an expression of the love he has for a very particular group of people, the people he calls his friends, the people who are identified as those who obey his commandments. You are my friends if you do what I command you. These people know the love of Jesus in a way that the world, though they experience the love of God, don't quite understand. That they've come to see the love that God has for us, that we should be called children of God. And that's exactly what we are. That's how Jesus loves. So he says... Love one another as I have loved you. And that's in the back of his mind. That's what he's talking about. The whole scope of his life, which was motivated by love, is supposed to condition the love that you and I share for each other. Now, obviously, there are certain elements of the love Jesus showed that we can't replicate. I can't die for your sins. I'm not perfect. And if I died for my sins, I would be suffering the just punishment for it. But there's nothing in me that should necessitate that I come back from the dead like Jesus did. So there are certain elements of his love that are, that are just unique. But when he says, love one another as I have loved you, he's not giving us an impossible command. He's calling us to do something that's within our power, under the Holy Spirit's guidance to do, and that is to love one another sacrificially and selflessly, to put others' needs above our own. Look at 1 John 4 with me in verse 7. John thinking about this, really just breaks it wide open and explains it. And if you take home a copy of the Followers 5 and you look at it this week, you'll see that one of the scriptures you could think about this week is 1 John 4, I think 10 to 21. But look at 1 John 4, 7. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested to us. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You think, I think if you take what Jesus says and John's reflections on it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 John 4, what you get is something really close to what I told you at the beginning of the sermon. That when you experience the love of Jesus, you're transformed to love others. It's not natural. It's a supernatural work of God. That when a person comes to see how deeply loved they are by God, they can't help but love others. That's why I personally believe that the deeper you go in your knowledge of God, the more mature you become in your Christian walk, the more you'll understand how much God loves you, and the more loving, merciful, and compassionate you'll be towards people. I don't think anybody ever got mature in Christ and simultaneously got more judgmental. That didn't work. I don't think anybody ever grew in Christ and got more divisive. I don't think anybody ever grew in Christ and became the type of person that people avoid being around. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter how much you know about God. It doesn't matter what you do for God. What matters, Jesus says, is that you love. That's why I love the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, when he starts talking about love, he says, if, if I speak in the tongues of angels but don't have love, I'm just a crashing cymbal and a clanging gong. If I plunge the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge but I don't have love, I'm nothing. You know, we're called to love one another as Jesus loves us. That's who we are. Selflessly, sacrificially, putting others first. Which brings us to the final point this morning. Not what we do or how we do it, but why. Why does Jesus call us to love? He says in verse 16, You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Here's what I think he's saying here. If love was the means or the motivating force behind Jesus' whole life, that means he came to earth because he loved, and he lived an obedient life because he loved, and he offered himself as a sacrifice because he loved, and even now he's at the Father's right hand praying for you because he loves you. And I'm called to love, then somehow the love that you and I show each other serves the same purpose. That love is the means by which God accomplishes redemption, and as we love one another, he continues that mission through us. That's why Jesus says, don't think that you chose me. Don't think that you're lovable or that I'm real blessed to have you. That's not how this whole thing works. You were unlovable, and I loved you still, and I did it with a purpose in mind, that I chose you so that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. 
See, Jesus always has his eye towards the future. And he knows his big plan for our world, that he's redeeming a people from every nation, tribe, and language, and that he had chosen these 11 men to be apostles. That when he was resurrected and ascended to God's right hand, he was going to send them his Holy Spirit that he talked about back in chapter 13 and 14. And that Holy Spirit was going to empower them to teach. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus was going to convict the world of sin. And behind this message of judgment and the need for repentance was the concrete example of love. That people were going to see the disciples and the way they interacted with each other, and they were going to hear the message, and they were going to bear fruit. Most scholars think that the fruit Jesus is talking about are future believers. The fruit he's really after for these 11 men is that they're going to preach the gospel, and it's going to be fruitful. People are going to come to faith in Christ. Because of that, I think the why of love is not just because it's commanded. We're not slaves who, does, who do what our master does, tells us to do just because we have to. We're his friends. We see the big picture. He's brought us into his confidence and explained to us his purpose for the world. And as we love one another, we fulfill the purpose for which we were called. That's why this morning I want you to know love was not incidental to who the disciples were. It was going to have to be Intentional. You don't slip into sacrificial love. You know full well that if I do this, it's going to cost me, and you do it anyway. And the love Jesus has in mind is not simply meaningful. And so because the world needs love, I go to church, and there's a group of people who surround me with love, and I feel so good, and it's nice to have a group of friends who love me. Yeah, that's, that's true. But it's not just meaningful, it's missional. That Jesus has a purpose in mind, and as we love one another, the whole world sees it, and we bear fruit. That's why you see it in Acts chapter 2. People willingly sell their possessions. They sell property. Can you imagine selling a piece of property and giving it to your church? Not so your church can build a building, but because you got some people in your church who are living below the poverty line. And if you sell 40 acres, you give the church the money, they can help make up the difference. That's what they were doing in Acts chapter 2 and 3. Selling what they had so they could provide for the needs of others. That's sacrificial love. Look at Acts chapter 6. The church has just exploded. And they're carrying out this ministry of every day providing hot meals for widows. And so they've grown so much, there are some widows who are being overlooked, so they create the role of deacon to make sure that the widows get fed. They love each other. They're sacrificing. They ask these men to sacrifice of their time to serve the needs of the church, to love. You see Aristides saying, behold how they love each other. And you trace the history of the church. Joe, can you hold still for a few more minutes? Yeah. Okay, you want to sit back down? Sweet. You look through the history of the church, and everywhere you look, you see love. You see hospitals. You see the Red Cross. You see orphanages and children's homes. You see charitable organizations and development organizations, people who go to Africa and dig wells. Love. People sacrificing their time and money to go. Love. You see it on a local level. People praying for one another. Visiting the sick. Providing meals for people who can't cook. Cutting grass. Building homes. Giving people rides to doctor's appointments. Going out of your way to pick up the phone and say, hey, 
No, she hadn't been at church lately. We miss you. Is everything okay? Expressing your thanks. Hey, thank you so much for what you do. Those are simple acts of love that Jesus is talking about. That's what we do. And when we do that, when we love like he loves us, sacrificially, selflessly, we fulfill the purpose for which we were called. So I like the way one person summarized it. They said, authentic discipleship is encapsulated in love for one another. And I'm saying it's the essence of following Jesus. That without love, nothing matters. Love really is what the world needs. It's what Luling needs. And in the perfect wisdom of God, you're the solution. All y'all. We are the solution. The world does need love, and God's going about giving it to them. Of course, first, you've got to experience the love of Jesus yourself. I wonder this morning, have you, have you come to the place in your life where you know how deeply God loves you? Have you allowed yourself to sit and just think for 30, 45 seconds about how unlovable you actually are? Think about that. I'm pretty unlovable. Ask my wife or kids. I got some huge character quirks. They're not flaws. Idiosyncrasies, okay? I got some major problems in my life. Look, if people didn't love me, they'd cut me out. But I'm thankful for the people God's placed around me who love me. Do you have people like that who love you? Now, have you thought about God who created you for a perfect relationship with him and yet you go astray time and time again? You know what he wants for you. You can see it clearly, and yet you turn your back on it and go your own way. Have you thought about how patient he must be? How much he really must love you if he keeps giving you chance after chance after chance? If he's there every time you say, God, I made a mess again, bail me out, and he's there. He didn't say, you, lost up all your ch- you used up all your chances. I'm done with you. No, he has overwhelming love that when you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, because of the great love with which he loved you, he made you alive in Christ, saved you by his grace. Have you experienced that? Do you know the love that God has for you? Maybe this morning you don't. You've never been loved by anybody. Everybody in your life has done you wrong. Well, I'm here to say that God loves you more deeply than you can imagine. And he does have a great plan for your life. Surrender yourself to his love. Receive him. God so loved the world that whoever, whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Express your faith in Christ today. Turn from sin. And church, we have an incredible opportunity as those who've experienced the love of Jesus. To be the solution the world needs. To be people characterized by love. To be people known by love. And so I wonder, are you living the kind of love Jesus is talking about in this passage? Are you loving one another as he's loved you? If I could, I think... If I could just, you would do one thing today with this passage. It would just be to dig into the command to love one another. 
Really think about all that that means. To love one another as I have loved you. Of course, we're trying to help you with that. Trying to help you foster relationships with people in our church where those kind of loving relationships can take root. We call them connect groups. Love for you to get involved in a connect group. 10 to 12 people meeting together weekly, developing the kind of relationship where when your car breaks down on the side of the road, you got a group of people you can text message and say, hey, can somebody come bail me out? I want you to get involved in a connect group, but maybe you say connect group's not for me. Well, I don't, that's fine. Just find a group of people to love, to let God work through you, to let his Holy Spirit develop the fruits of his spirit, which are love, joy, peace, and all the rest. Dig into this command and obey. I can guarantee you when that happens, the whole world will see. There's something different about those people. The world needs love, and they've got it. And you'll get the opportunity to say, well, hey, when you trust in Jesus and experience his love, you'll be transformed to love too. You all pray with me?